the Institute of the American hosted by the Institute of the Americas at University College London. My name is David Lehman. Went to Chile the first time, if you can believe this, in September 1968. And I've been following the country's ups and downs ever since. I think this event is, I, the Constitution now is an event of particular international importance, especially in our, in my country, England, I don't really know if we can talk about the United Kingdom anymore. In my country, we don't seem to have a constitution and we keep, we have over the last four years, given a sort of a world, a global example of what happens when you don't have a constitution, or at least you have a constitution which is made up of an intricate set of conventions. Um, I'm really pleased to have with us three really interesting people from Chile. Javier Coso is professor at the Universidad Diego Portales and is in the, um, in the COES, which is a center of, for the study of cohesion, cohesion and, como es? Social cohesion. conflict and cohesion. Conflict and cohesion. And Emmanuel Barrosé is a professor at the Universidad de Chile. And um, she has written really interesting stuff about the Chilean middle classes and the clientelistic system, whereby they are, or some of them are, get jobs in the state apparatus, basically. Javier has a PhD, as I understand it, from the University of California and is an authority on constitutional matters. Emmanuel has her doctorate from the Ecole des Hautes Etudes in Paris, and, but has lived in Chile for a long time. And from the two minutes I know her speaks excellent English too. Hassan Akram is the author of a book called Estallido. Can you show it, Hassan? There you are. This is, I believe to be a bestseller in Chile. And Hassan has PhD from the University of Cambridge where he wrote about the way in which the previous constitution was um, made by, um, what's the man's name? By um, the, the advisor to Pinochet, what's his name? Guzman. Jaime Guzman. Yes, that's right, Jaime Guzman and how it was inspired by the ideas of Hayek. So let's start with Javier who is going to speak each, like each of them for 15 minutes. Javier, over to you. Thank you, David. Uh, thanks to UCL for the invitation and great to be with Emmanuel and Fasan. Well, in these 15 minutes, I would like to talk mostly about the constitutional side of this process, which is of course embedded in a very complex social and political process that the country has been uh, you know, experiencing over the last couple of years and, and more. Let's, but focusing on the constitutional, strictly constitutional aspects, what we had uh, over the last uh, decade was a rather unprecedented uh, issue. Uh, in three consecutive presidential elections, most candidates had as a very important part of their platforms, of their presidential platforms, 
the proposals of a new constitution. This started in 2009 when uh, former president Frey Ruiz Tagle, Eduardo Frey Ruiz Tagle, Marcos Enrique Sominami, and Jorge Arrate, all three of them uh, included a new constitution uh, as part of the, their presidential platform. Uh, in two, and that year, Piñera prevailed and he did not have a new constitution there, but the social movements of the students in 2011, the university students, was the first social movement that linked the malaise with the model with the constitution. And that was very fastly captured by Marca Ace, a social movement asking for a constitutional assembly for having a new constitution. Then President Bachelet most prominently had a new constitution within his three main uh, goals in her second presidency. She prevailed, but because she stated that the new constitution would, would have to be not just participative and democratic, but also institutional, she needed two thirds of the actual members of Congress to get a new constitution process going on. She tried to, you know, in a soft way, tried to push for a new constitution with the participatory process of 2015 and 16, but the right wing never uh, hinted that it would give the two thirds needed to actually start uh, the new constituent process. And again, in 2017, all candidates except Piñera, again, included a new constitution in the platforms. So in a way, from a very, uh, I mean, technical point of view, we can say that at least in Latin America, to have three consecutive presidential elections, having the constitution being part of the partisan debate, tells you uh, to what extent the claim, the, 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 the need or the, the, the felt need of a new constitution was already there. And uh, opinion polls since the time of uh, Bachelet II in 2014 started to track a public opinion concerning a new constitution and most people around 60 to 70% persistently stated that Chile needed a new constitution. Then it's important to know from a strictly constitutional point of view that the constitution of 1980 was rather unprecedented for Chile in two very specific ways. It was imposed by the most violent or criminal uh, dictatorship we ever had as a country. Chile had only two dictatorships, one in 1927 to 1931, but that was not as brutal as Pinochet's constitution. And it did not have this uh, foundational uh, aim. Pinochet's constitution was aimed at ending what Jaime Guzman was very candid and put it in writing everything he thought. The constitution of 1980 was aimed at preventing what happened in Spain after Franco died. Guzman was a, you know, he, he was a very, an admirer of Franco's Spain, and he was appalled once uh, Spain very, you know, quickly after Franco died, untied everything that had been so very well tied. Uh, and he was really, really shocked by this. Guzman conceived the democratic era before 1973 as an era of populism and technocratic irrationality. And he wanted to take 
what he called a window of opportunity provided by the dictatorship to provide technocratic rationality to be protected from democracy. Basically, the fear was that as it happened in Spain, once democracy returned, everything of the previous regime would be dismantled. So the constitution of 1980, and he was very open about this. He said, the point of the 1980 constitution is to, if our adversaries get to power, they will be constrained to do more or less what we would have liked to do. So the point of the constitution was to try to prevent the dismantling of a rather extreme version of neoliberal economics that received constitutional entrenchment. When people are aware, students of Chile, of how often the constitution of 1980 has been amended, but the economic constitution of Chile had not been amended once in the last 40 years. And we have, I don't have enough time to go, it would, you know, it would be worth a full, you know, workshop to analyze the peculiar way in which the constitution was used to basically freeze neoliberal legality, freeze to isolate it from normal politics. So in a way, it, this came, it became obvious when Bachelet II, which was the most progressive government of the governments of the Concertación and Nueva Mayoría, the center left and left governments that Chile experienced before Piñera II, it was the first really a government that really wanted to innovate in public policy, trying to dismantle elements of the neoliberal model that we have, we still have. And it clashed with the constitutional court. So the, the need for a new constitution became very apparent by the end of the government of Bachelet for all progressive uh, groups. We were, people who were pushing for the constitution were very frustrated, of course, that the, the most, the closest we were to get it under Bachelet, you know, the, the, the right wing was denying the two thirds. They were basically uh, doing what it needed to be done from their point of view to prevent the dismantling of the model. So the social uh, outbreak, the, the estallido social as uh, Hassan's book a, a title refers to really was a, from the constitutional point of view, an opportunity to finally end the constitutional legacy of the dictatorship of the military regime. And I want to explain why the constituent process a, almost, a, almost clearly a, a ensures that we will end a, the, the constitution of Pinochet. Basically, the 80-20%, this very, very strong demand for a new constitution expressed in the elections eight, years, eight days ago is very important because the rules of the game of the constituent process make it possible for one third plus one to really veto a lot of uh, changes. And before that very you know, strong mandate to have a new constitution, some of us who favor a new constitution were very, you know, were worried that, let's say, had they reject gotten 45% and they approve to a new constitution only 55, 
that would have, you know, made the people from Chile's right wing to sort of uh, use their political power to, in a way, frustrate the passing of a new constitution. With 80% of the people uh, voting for a new constitution, it's very unlikely that you're going to have a boycott of the constituent process because you would you will end up with a very clear call in a referendum for a new constitution by a massive, you know, uh, in a referendum that had enough legitimacy in terms of the numbers of people that voted in conditions of pandemia and also in a 80 against 20% margin. So were this process to fail, you would have the constitutional problem will still remain. So that's the significance of the very high numbers that the approved option got. So what's next? In the next five months, we're going to have the electoral process to get the constituent members. The constitutional body that will actually debate and draft a new text, it will be composed of 155 people as of today, because if the benches for the indigenous peoples gets approved, it might go up by 15, 17, or even 23 new benches that are reserved for the indigenous populations, representatives. So again, the, another important uh, feature of this body is that it will be elected the representatives with a parity rule, gender parity rule, which is unprecedented in Chile and, uh, and most observers and claim that in terms of comparative constitutional law, when it comes to constitution making bodies. The election will be done under the same electoral system that were, that rules the way members of the Chamber of Deputies in Chile get elected, which also has 155 members. So it's a proportional representation with the don't uh, system, the Belgium, you know, very old and traditional way of having proportional representation. And basically the body will be working on two very, I would say three very important rules of the game. The first one is that every single clause of the new constitution will need two thirds of the acting actual members of this body to be included in the new constitution. On the other hand, the, if there is no agreement, no two thirds agreement on having a clause, there will be no default a clause from the existing constitution that will uh, prevail. So that's what we call the hoja en blanco, a clean uh, start. Uh, and, and basically this is extremely important because the two thirds uh, majority of active, actual members of the constituent body uh, would have been a disaster if would not coupled with the notion that there will be no constitutional regulation if you do not get two thirds. So the second important aspect is that there are a couple of limits that the text will need to, to, to respect. International law, particularly international human rights law, it cannot be negated by the text of the new constitution. On the other hand, the democratic and republican nature of the Chilean state, separation of powers, that means the independence of the judiciary really because the country might well, uh, you know, Try, go to a 
a parliamentarian regime or semi-presidential regime, but the, the independence of the judiciary need to be in the new text. And finally, there, there will be a, a system of a resolution of controversies a, concerning the rules of the game of this body. There will be the Supreme Court. In a way, the Chilean constitutional body will be working uh, in, in many ways as uh, the way the South African uh, Constitutional Assembly worked. It, in, we don't have an interim constitution as the South African had between 1993 and 1996, but we have two thirds of, to have a new clause included in the text as the South African had, although they did have mechanisms to end a, a stalemate. We don't have that. That's why I started this very fast account of how the constitutional uh, scenario will play out in Chile because uh, the 80, 20% majority, I insist on this point, makes it really hard uh, for the constitutional uh, convention to fail to deliver a text. Once this body will be working for only nine to 10, 12 months, and it's forbidden to take on the powers of any other constituted, constituted uh, existing powers. The current Congress, the current presidency, the current Supreme Court, they are all going to be working as usual. And, and the, the Constitutional Assembly or Constitutional Convention, and we can, some people have an ontological difference for this. Basically, the work groups like uh, Gabriel Salazar, the Chilean historian who would say that this, because it has these limits, like international human rights law, or uh, the fact that they cannot declare itself the sole sovereign power and declare that other powers cease to function, it's not really a constitutional assembly. But if we take a more comparative constitutional law uh, view of this, the South African uh, constitutional assembly had many limits and, uh, and it was a bounded process like the Chilean one will be. And it's important to know from a political point of view that the communist, Chilean Communist Party and part of the Frente Amplio did not agree to this constituent process in the first, uh, you know, in the first moment because they thought it was too constrained. But two months after they really uh, went, uh, came on board and now are, have been very, very enthusiastic about it. So what happens after the 12 months period, because it's likely going to take 12 months, not nine, uh, the text will be uh, submitted to the people again to ratify in another referendum. And this referendum will have mandatory vote. The one we had eight days ago, we voted with the current system of voluntary voting, which, is a, which has been the cause that the actual electoral participation has been around 50% of the electoral, electoral, the people with, with, the, with the possibility of voting uh, ever since it was adopted like 10 years ago. Before that, Chile had around 70 to 80% participation. So we will have a exit referendum, and uh, but that time it will be the third time the, the, the Chilean electoral, uh, electorate will actually be asked about this process. Last Sunday, they were asked if they wanted or not a new constitution and what body 
was going to do it, a fully elected body, not the one that we're going to have, or a mixed, that one was not choose, chosen. And uh, then the election of the actual uh, constituent members in April 11th, and then around July 2022, we expect to have the exit referendum where people are going to ask, be asked if they uh, ratify what their representatives have elaborated, or if they don't, and that's a, the, the, the thing that I was worried about before last uh, uh, October 25, the current constitution would continue if the process were to be, uh, people were to reject the text, or it would have, it would have continued in existence had, if the constituent body that does not get a text to submit to the people for ratification. But again, as I, as I came at the, at the, in the first part of my intervention, basically uh, it's impossible, it's very hard to imagine that any political group can you know, frustrate what is a clear mandate of the Chilean people. To end, because I'm uh, mindful that I have only one minute left, I would say that uh, the ex to what extent and how this relates to the, one of the issues that will be surrounding this constituent process is the fact that we have a government that has, that's, uh, you know, has a very low uh, approval rate around 17% in the last opinion poll. And the, we are facing uh, the, a pandemic that has created a huge economic crisis that came on top of the social movements of, that were initiated in October 19, 18th of 2019. So in a way that this will put some pressure, uh, outside pressure to a process that would have been way more, let's say orderly and uh, quiet and more perhaps thoughtful had Bachelet uh, been allowed to uh, have a constituent process back in 2014 or 15. But on the other hand, the Chilean right wing was uh, only tolerated a constituent process because of the social outbreak of last year. Thank you very much, uh, David. I think I can stop there. You're muted. Thank you very much. Now I've unmuted. <laughs> Now we have an excellent background on the rules of the game as we go forward. So now over to Emmanuel, who's going to give us a story about the social background. Emmanuel. Hello. <clears throat> Thank you so much, David, for the invitation. So I'll share my screen with a brief presentation. And here we go. Can you see it? Okay, great. So as David said, uh, my mission is to delve into some uh, elements of the social, political and economic context to frame uh, what Javier has uh, presented. And I will, believe, uh, I will begin with some uh, graphic reminders. I suppose some of you remember uh, this, uh, what happened uh, one year ago. Uh, and on October 8, uh, 2019, uh, President Pinera said um, that uh, 
Chile was in the middle uh, of uh, Latin America as an oasis. In the middle of this converse continent, Chile is a true oasis with a stable democracy. Yeah. And so in 10 days, we went uh, from that to a violent uh, social outburst in the whole country from north to south. It was not only something happening in Santiago. So the extension of the outburst is also really uh, interesting. And so that's the extension of the outburst. I use some photographs of uh, students from my faculty uh, who published an, a really interesting book with uh, the whole documentation of the whole process in many cities uh, in Chile. And from that, we went to this uh, last week, <clears throat> as uh, Javier explained, which is the result of the uh, constitutional plebiscite, uh, historical plebiscite, as uh, Javier explained. And what is interesting in that process is that, uh, well, the participation was not that high, but yes, we are uh, living a pandemic. So maybe there are explanations about the fact that uh, only half of the electorate went to vote, but uh, that figure is quite good on the other on the other side. And so, as you can see here, I'm sorry, it's in, in Spanish, no, 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 not in English. Uh, the vast majority of the Chileans who voted voted for approve around 78 percent, and uh, there was a profound rejection towards the mixed uh, conventional uh, body. Uh, that would have been with a half of the seats uh, occupied by elected parliamentarians. So uh, as Javier said, which, what is interesting here is that we have a whole constitutional body uh, elected with citizens. Well, they may, they may come from uh, parties, independents, uh, but that's something quite interesting. And as Javier said, we will have a total parity, gender parity in this uh, con conventional body. So. Uh, how did we get to this situation uh, in less than one year? I would like to remember some social, uh, political and economic elements. First of all, uh, there, is, there was always uh, a kind of paradox in social inclusion in Chile. Chile has been uh, the best uh, student in, in, in the classroom until Chile uh, um, uh, was invited to participate in the OECD and then it was all, always the last student uh, in the class because of the comparison. So Chile has or had, because of the crisis, we don't know right now, but a high gross national income per capita. Um, so it's a middle income uh, country. The unemployment rate was under 10% for the last uh, 30 years, but we know there was a lot of uh, labor informality. There was a massive inclusion in higher education, which, has, which was almost a, an explosion of the number of, of students, but it was also a problem. Uh, we'll see why. And Chile was one of the uh, top three countries in the Human Development Index of Latin America and the Caribbean. And the others are surprisingly Argentina and Cuba. So you can see that the reason why a country has uh, a high development index is not necessarily its uh, political or economic regime. However, uh, the population rejects these social policies from a long time now. It's not just uh, last year. And uh, it's not just social policies, it's, all, it's all, 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 also the model of development. So there was a crisis of the model before the outburst. Uh, on the economic level, um, 
the, the economy has a lot of constraints. As we know, the economy is based on exportations of primary commodities. So it's something we'll have to uh, have an eye on because the whole constitutional process depends also on the situation that Chile will go through with uh, international situation, uh, primary commodities prices. So it's something really important, specifically because Chile is highly dependent on international markets and copper price. And as you know, uh, China is the main buyer of copper right now. So one of the main problems of Chile too was the fact that from uh, um, 2014 on, um, Chinese economy uh, went slower. So that was a problem for Chile. There is a lack of industrial policy. So that, that's one of the problems we have because we have lots of people trained in universities, but we still have high inequalities most of the population is poorly trained uh, and we have high proportions of working poor. And so we maybe in some European countries, we have experience about that, uh, but here it's something quite new. And lots of people believed the promise of uh, inclusion through education and through uh, university education. As you can see here, the monthly medium income is quite low. It's uh, figures in uh, British pounds. And if you sum uh, two monthly, uh, two, two um, incomes in the households, uh, as you can see, the poverty line is around 180 pounds. Uh, many families are living really near the uh, poverty line. So we talked a lot about middle classes in Latin America over the last decades. But one of the main problems is that all these families were highly dependent on debt. So as the economy began to slow down in the last years, it was really difficult for families to, uh, how do you say in English, to meet month's ends. I always confused with Spanish and French, but well, I suppose you understand. And one of the main problems was uh, pensions. Uh, last year and a few years before, the first generation, uh, people around 60, 65, uh, were uh, aging and so uh, going to get uh, retired from the uh, labor market. And uh, they discovered, well, it was already known, many people uh, would know that there would be a problem about pensions and there was a, a presidential commission a few years ago. But as you can see, uh, the minimum pension is 120 pounds and the median pension is 165 pounds, which is under the poverty line. So there was a huge problem coming in the last years. Well, that's something uh, lots of people know that's the income distribution in Chile uh, 2017 before the crisis. Uh, so our problem is not was not before the pandemic and the crisis poverty in Chile, now it is once again. Uh, the main problem has always been uh, the accumulation of wealth in what part of the social structure. It's maybe not that different from other countries, but it's different from Argentina, for example. Um, and so that's, uh, so you have um, a figure to compare, that's the line uh, with uh, median income, uh, not median income, but the income that would be uh, the line for uh, around uh, 1,000 uh, pounds. So do you, you remember that the medium income is uh, less than that and uh, lower than half of it. 
So what went wrong on the political, social political scene? Javier uh, gave some clues about it. Uh, we know that there is a, a crisis of political representation as soon as 206, uh, 2006 with the high, high school uh, students movement. So it's not something new. Lots of uh, social scientists have shown that uh, protests did not begin in 2011, but in 2006 with the high school uh, student movements. But the first protest not led by political parties appeared uh, right after that, or with uh, this movement in 2006, with the students movement in, two, in two, 2011, the movement against pensions in 2013, environmentalist movements, and the huge feminist movement in 2018. The problem is that uh, when treated by the political system, the answers to these social demands were either slow or market-oriented, which it is what happened with scholarships uh, at the university level. Uh, so in the end, many of the reforms uh, favored uh, the market. There was also a series of scandals of corruption and abuse from uh, 2015 on, specifically uh, financial and political uh, financing. So that was a disaster for the whole uh, political system, but also the church. I suppose you remember that that was one of the main headaches of the Pope, what happened in Chile with uh, child abuse. Uh, and it's still uh, going on. I mean, it's something still uh, not resolved here in Chile. And so it's been quite a long time now that the elite has lost contact with the rest of the society. We uh, saw it clearly last, uh, not this last uh, Sunday, but the one before during the elections uh, in the uh, municipalities where the uh, rechazo won. Uh, so there are ghettos where the elite live. It's not may be different from other countries, but uh, in the process we are living right now, it's something really important. And as I said before, the problem of low pensions was a ticking bomb. And um, as we can see maybe later, or Hassan will comment on it, uh, some of the reforms needed um, constitutional reforms. Some of the social and economic reforms needed some constitutional reforms, and they aborted generally at the level of the uh, constitutional uh, court. So uh, to finish this part, uh, what are the positive elements and the concerns we should have for, for what is uh, we're going to live now in the next two years, uh, as Javier uh, was explaining? Positive elements, the uh, plebiscite uh, 10 days ago, eight days ago, it was an exemplary plebiscite in Latin America. Clean, we had really quick results. So that's a really, really, uh, uh, fine element considering what's going to happen in the US in a few days, and we don't even know if that will be that exemplary. As Javier said, we have a gender parity uh, for constitutional convention, which is, I understand, unique in the world right now. All political forces declare they will be part of the process, which is different also from other uh, conventional processes in Latin America, where some of the political forces were out of the process, because they didn't want to be a part or because they were excluded, which is not the case in Chile. And for now, there is no serious threat of populism, in my opinion. Maybe, well, the door is still open. Uh, the crisis might not help, but uh, so far, so good. 
What are the main concerns? Uh, will the constitutional process channel street participation? We still don't know, but until last week, uh, from last week on, we could say that maybe the plebiscite was good news. So, but we'll see if really uh, the pressure uh, on the street uh, will go on. Uh, we have a crisis of hyper-presidentialism and de facto parliamentarism. Uh, Javier uh, didn't delve a lot of that in that, but maybe we could uh, go back to that. Uh, because the current government um, has been quite erratic with moments where it was really lost in translation. The government is really divided and more divided now than maybe before uh, the plebiscite. So, uh, we have a problem of, of, of governance, governance right now, and as the government will go on now, uh, we still don't know how this part uh, will go on. We have no real uh, social policies uh, to tackle the uh, pandemic and the economic crisis, so we could think that street participation and mass demonstration will go on. And we have uh, one huge problem still, which is how to place law enforcement under the tutelage of the state and resolve serious human rights violations and corruption cases. Uh, this part of the problem is still not resolved. And so, and we know that the uh, current government uh, is not really responding to international um, critics about what happened last year with the violations of uh, human rights. So a few references, if someone is interested, I can send the, this presentation and thank you so much. You're still muted, David. Thank you very much, Emmanuel. Uh, that was a lot of information in a very short time. And, and I think people will have a lot to say about that and about Javier's presentation as well. So quickly, we move on now to Hassan Akram. Hassan. Well, what can I say? After Javier has just given us such a complete analysis of uh, the constitutional element of the process, and Emmanuel has given us the socio-political context, I, I think we have a good basis to perhaps go into a little bit more detail on certain elements of the interpretative narrative um, that we use to understand what's going on. So I'd like to just make three quick points. One about the political context, so linking the political context to the constitutional process, specifically in something that was called the Acuerdo por la Paz, which was the law 21,200, which is what set this constitution-making process going. Then I'd make, like to make some second points about the political context of the plebiscite itself. And finally, finish up talking about uh, what's going to happen in the future regarding the new uh, constitutional convention that's coming together. So in terms of the political context of the late 21,200, this was on the 15th of November 2019, which was uh, at the height of the uh, social protests that were going on that, you know, that was called the El Estallido, uh, like the book. Um, so I think it's important to bear in mind that the only reason that we are having a constitutional debate in the, at this moment is because of those social mobilizations. Having mentioned how the Chilean political elite had constantly been talking about a new constitution. In fact, the issue of the new constitution is even older than the examples Javier mentioned. The Acuerdo Nacional, 
1985, which was the precursor of the Concertación that governed Chile for 20 years. Uh, this involved the, uh, the Christian Democrats and the Socialist Party as, as the mainstream center-left and center-right parties. And in the 1980s, in the, they had already committed to a new constitution. The Alianza Democrática, which was the, this initial union between the Christian Democrats and the Socialist Party, specifically committed to a new constitution created through a constituent assembly. When the Acuerdo Nacional was signed with the right, they further committed to making drastic reforms to the existing constitution uh, through uh, plebiscites and going forward to creating a new constitution in the future. In fact, this was promised to Patricio Elwin, the first uh, president uh, of democratic Chile, a Christian Democrat, by uh, Renovación Nacional, the slightly less extreme, it would be incorrect to call them moderate, but the slightly less extreme right-wing party, uh, uh, in Chile, that this group called the Patrulla Juvenil, um, and uh, there you had Senador Alamand. Yeah, Andres Alamand is interesting because he has currently made a name for himself as the person who is most opposed to all this uh, this process of, uh, of creating a new constitution through a constituent assembly. But in fact, originally in the 80s and 90s, he was one of the people who was proposing this. So the Chilean political elite have been going on about this for ages. In fact, if you look at the people who signed the Acuerdo por la Paz, there you have the UDI. This is the party founded by Jaime Guzmán, who we've mentioned several times before. He was the person who effectively was the leading light in the Comisión Ortúzar, which created the 1980 Constitution. So you had the creators of the 1980 Constitution signing on to changing it. You also had the Socialist Party signing on. And it's important to understand the degree of hypocrisy of the Socialist Party. Uh, Senador, uh, Senator uh, Camilo Escalona, uh, one of the leading Socialist Party senators is famous for saying that the idea of changing the, the constitution through a constituent assembly was like smoking opium. And interestingly enough, this wasn't an isolated opinion. The president at the time of the Socialist Party was Osvaldo Andrade, and he agreed with Camilo Escalona. So the position from the center-right and the center-left was basically, we aren't changing this constitution. There were a lot of polite noises made. The process uh, offered by Michel Bachelet was another or they say in Spanish, you know, saludo la bandera. It was, it's the polite noises that you make when you know you should do something, but you aren't going to put any political capital into, going, into doing so. So the idea of this constitution being changed was something that the political class were happy to talk about, but were never actually willing to do on both sides of the center-right center -right and the center-left. Why did it happen? Because they were terrified, faced with this incredible wave of social protests. This was a movement achieved against the wishes of the entire socio-political elite in Chile. Of course, of the business elite, but also of the duopolistic political elite that have dominated um, Chile since the, the democratic transition uh, in 1990. So it's important to uh, bear that in mind when we understand that this is a process where there is profound lack of confidence in political elites who are currently trying to take responsibility on both sides. P President Piñera gave a national uh, speech in which he said that we're all winners in this process, trying to suggest that he had been the person who had initiated this constitution-making process. But no less ridiculous than that, given that Piñera was one of the people who blocked it, was the attempt by the ex-concertacion, by people like um, Heraldo Muñoz of the Party for the Democracy, and other people who have existed their entire political careers inside of the limits of the 1980 constitution to now claim that they're taking part in this uh, constitution-making process. Uh, 
it's important to bear in mind that the reforms that were made to the 1980 constitution, and there have been many, were precisely made by the same political elite. Uh, the, the, the Concertación used to claim that the 1980 constitution didn't apply in Chile because in fact, they had a new constitution, the 2005 one, which was in fact signed by Ricardo Lagos and his entire gap, uh, cabinet, uh, which is interesting. I, if you look at that constitution, that effectively what it does is it changes uh, the original plan of Jaime Guzman, which was to limit democratic politics by having the military effectively uh, supervising. So you had designated senators, Pinochet himself designated, you had a, a, um, a national security council, which had a majority of, of military members, which could uh, call itself up at any time it wished to then uh, explain to the president that they were not agree, uh, not in agreement with any policy that, uh, that he was putting forward. Uh, this, of course, it doesn't have any specific institutional explanation, but the threat is very evident there. Um, and in fact, the constitution specifically said that the final guarantors of the Chilean constitution were the military. It's important to understand that if the military are the final guarantors, they're actually, in fact, the first guarantors, because they're the ones deciding whether the constitution has been violated or not. And so you have an entire system where the military supervises politics. This changed in 2005. And instead of that, you have a civilian minority uh, controlling the, the political system. This is the civilian minority through the binominal electoral system, which systematically overrepresents the right and continues to be a focus um, in, uh, in the constitutional tribunal, which is one of the major blocking points. So that's really the, the political element of it, uh, of why there is so much anger against the political elite, that they've promised a new constitution, a new way of doing politics, a new way of having structural reforms. But in reality, uh, under Ricardo Lagos, who declared it's a great victory that they created this new constitution, and under later concertación governments, no real substantive changes were made. And people at the end of the day, at the end of the day feel this. You look at the, um, at the levels of discontent, it's very, it's very clear. Now, in terms of the participation in the plebiscite, uh, this was you know, just happened now on the 25th of October of this year, there you have an interesting change. So 51% participation sounds like not a particularly good number, but bear in mind that this is in the context of a pandemic. So if you look, for example, at the French municipal elections and other European elections held during uh, pandemics, participation collapses, whereas in the case of Chile, you actually have the highest number of votes overall. Now, if you take this 51% participation, this means that uh, the people who voted in favor of the new constitution are approximately 40% uh, of the voting age population. That compared with 27% of the voting age population who voted for President Piñera. So you have a, a fairly strong um, support for this new, uh, new constitution. But what's interesting about this is that if you look at the declining uh, electoral participation, this is something from 1988 onwards, you see a fall uh, uh, in voting patterns. Um, and this is a dramatic fall. It's not just a normalization as, as some analysts have tried to say, that we're moving back from very high participation connected with the end of the dictatorship towards normal lower levels of participation in conventional democracies. In fact, the, the UNDP has put out a study, which is very interesting, which shows that Chile in fact has the second highest collapse in electoral participation after Madagascar. So you have a very strong collapse. And this is also not exclusively due to the introduction of uh, voluntary as opposed to obligatory voting, which is uh, brought in in 2012, because the pattern of falling votes predates that. It's got to do with the lack of legitimacy of the political process. And that changed with the plebiscite. You see a recovery for the first time. Votes start to go up. Right? This hasn't happened since the um, 
since uh, since 1988. And also there's a very interesting thing that's, I think, disguised by the fact that this election took place in, during the pandemic, that you see a fall in, uh, in voter participation in the wealthiest districts and an increase of political participation in the poorest districts. Uh, in the poorest areas, it's clearer to see in Santiago because the, the, the boroughs are more socially segregated. In the poorest boroughs, which have voted at very, very low levels, which explains why Piñera won the, uh, the last election, not because he was a popular candidate, he got 27% of the overall vote. It's that the, uh, the, the working classes stopped voting for the center-left, for the reasons I was mentioning in my first point. Um, so what you, uh, you see now is this huge increase in participation, which seems to be, we'll know in a couple of months when the CERVEL, the electoral authority, releases the figures, but basically you, we seem to have a big increase in young voters and a big increase in new uh, working class voters. So these are people who have never voted before who started to vote. So this is a transformation from the political context of the old political elite to a new formation. So what does this mean for the future? Uh, just to end, and I'm aware I have only three minutes, we can surely go to uh, further uh, questions um, and go to more detail later. But I would say that the new constitution is not an end in itself. People did not go out and march because they wanted a new constitution signed in democratic conditions. People went out to march because it was difficult for them to pay their bills at the end of the month. If you look at uh, Chile's economy, you see economic uh, growth stagnating, productivity, which is the basis of economic growth is, uh, has been stagnating for the last 15 years. This leads to wage stagnation. And wage stagnation is a terrible problem in a country where social rights have to be paid. So you have to pay for healthcare and education uh, of a to get it of a semi-decent quality. And this has basically meant that during the estallido last year, one out of every four Chilean was not only in debt, but was in arrears with their debts. So they were making late payments. So this high level of debt is what people want to change. And the new constitution is meant to be a tool to make those changes. And the idea is so you change pensions by creating a new pension system, you create uh, higher wages by uh, having um, collective bargaining at the sectoral rather than the, the workplace level. And these are fairly reasonable policies that, you know, you have sectoral bargaining in Germany, in France, in Uruguay, um, you have collective pension systems across the world, Canada, obvious, is an obviously good example of this. These are fairly well known public policies, they have been impossible to carry out, because and we saw this with the extremely insufficient labor reform that Michelle Bachelet uh, carried out in, the, in, the, in her last government, was immediately declared unconstitutional. So given that these things have been constantly declared unconstitutional, the hope is that with the new constitution, you can make these concrete changes to raise wages and pensions. The specific mechanics of that are complicated, but, and I'm sure we can go into that in, question, in questions, but the most important thing I think to bear in mind is that the political basis of this is a rejection of the existing elites and a new wave of social mobilization and a new wave of electoral participation of people who have not voted before.